Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. Well, Science and the City listeners, it is finally feeling like springtime. And with spring come the birds and the bees. Psychologist David Buss says he can't walk down a New York City street without seeing at least 10 examples of mating. While New York City is a city of love, this is probably also due to the fact that David studies mating and has for more than 30 years. He's currently a full-time professor of psychology at the University of Texas, where he's the head of the Individual Differences and Evolutionary Psychology area. He spoke this year at the American Museum of Natural History. His topic, why women have sex. I'm going to start by just mentioning how I got interested in the topic of of human mating strategies. And you may think, well, it's obvious everyone's interested in human mating strategies. But I got interested in it at not a personal but a professional level through an anthropology ethnography that I read. Uh, It was about a tribe called the Tiwi tribe. And the Tiwi tribe live on two small islands off the coast of northern Australia, Melville and Bathurst Islands. And they have a very unusual mating system. According to Tiwi law, all females, all women, all females have to be married at all times, which is kind of strange. What that means is as soon as a female is born, as soon as an infant daughter is born, she has to get married. Now, obviously... Mate preferences don't enter the equation for her as the infants don't express mate preferences at that early age. But what they do is the father typically bestows that infant daughter on, on another male. Okay, it's called a system known as infant bestowal. Okay, however, the Tiwi, their political system is basically a gerontocracy, which means the old guys have all the power. And so uh, what that means is it's typically not until a a male reaches, say, age 30 or 35 before he attains sufficient status and power to attract one of these infant wives. Now, what happens? So he attracts an infant wife. Let's say he's 30. He gets an infant daughter bestowed on him. Okay, she she doesn't crawl off to his household, you know, the marital household. She basically grows up in her own natal household until she hits puberty, at which point, she moves into her husband's house. But you can do the math here and see that, okay, if he's 30, she's zero. Uh, Let's say she has puberty at age 12, 13, 14, uh, varies. Now, he's in his 40s, and we know that men die on average about seven years earlier than women, uh, and that's cross-cultural. It's even universal in other species, like, say, cat species. Males die earlier than females unless you castrate the males then they live just as long as the females, uh, which gives you a, a, a clue about the, why men die earlier than women. But at any rate, what happens is, given the age disparity and given that women die earlier than men, I'm sorry, that men die earlier than women, there are a lot of widows in the Tiwi tribe. And so, but all women have to be married at all times. And so what happens then? Well, at that point, this adult female then can express some preferences about who she wants to mate with, but... It's a very political arrangement. So 
the uncles, the brothers of the husband start to get into the mix and try to influence the mating decision. And so they have this second mating procedure known as widow remarriage. And so that's how they mate. And they're in the Tiwi, they're known as a polygynous mating system, meaning that men are legally permitted to marry multiple women. And so the record uh, in the Tiwi tribe, the head honcho guy had 29 wives. Now, as you can imagine, if one guy has 29 wives, given that there's a relatively equal sex ratio to start with, then that means that there are 28 guys running around with no wives. And given that women tend to be sexually attracted to guys who are closer to their own age and not these aging, decrepit, you know, guys with, you know, liver spots and so forth, sometimes there is sexual infidelity. Now, what happens in the Tiwi tribe when there's sexual infidelity? Typically, one of the co-wives will tell the husband because there's a lot of co-wife conflict. They're always jockeying for position there. And so the husband, of course, becomes very humiliated when this happens, accuses the young man of sleeping with his wife, at which point, according to Tiwi custom, the young man has to come to the village center, and the old man gets to throw spears at him. (laughs) Now, some of these older guys are not very athletic, though. And so what happens is the young guys will start dodging the spears, but the old guy is in an alliance with all of the other old guys in this coalition. And so if the young guy dodges the spears too often or too frequently, the, all the old men will start picking up spears and throwing them at the young guy. And so the best strategy, if for you males who might want to join the Tiwi tribe, the best strategy is that the young man tries to maneuver it so that he gets a spear in the leg, uh, drawing a lot of blood, uh, salvaging the old man's honor, uh, and then he lives to see another day. So, uh, so what fascinated me about this group was, uh, one, the unusual nature of their mating system, two, the existence of infidelity, which is something that occurs across cultures, and also the tremendous focus on sex, mating, and women. In fact, the Tiwi view women as the economic currency. They don't have a cash economy. So this is what kind of spurred my interest in in human mating. This is from anthropology. And so I thought, well, surely, uh, given the importance of human mating that struck me, uh, all of my friends were talking about it. You walk across a college campus, that's all you see. That's all you hear. People talking about their mating experiences, bad, good, indifferent, uh, or whatever. And so I thought, surely, the field of psychology has developed a powerful theory to explain human mating strategies, human sexual strategies. And so I explored the field of psychology and became a psych major and then went to graduate school at Berkeley in psychology. But to my dismay, I discovered that the field of psychology had virtually entirely ignored the study of human mating uh, and, and sexuality. Hey, why do people mate the way they do? Who are they sexually attracted to? What are the factors? What is a theory that can explain the mating patterns of humans? And the theories at the time in psychology were just simply vapid. They were things like, well, uh, similarity. People are attracted to people who are similar to themselves. Well, okay, fair enough. They are in some domains, but that's a pretty pallid theory. And then the other assumption throughout all of the psychological research was that men and women were identical in their underlying sexual psychology. 
I mean, now it seems odd in historical perspective, but at the time, that's what everybody believed, that in, in sexual monomorphism of mind, so to speak, that men and women were identical in their underlying sexual psychology, except by virtue of parents giving daughters Barbie dolls and giving their sons Tonka trucks and so forth. And these cultural-specific or socialization-specific factors give rise to whatever minor sex differences we observe, as opposed to them being uh, underlying fundamental evolved sex differences in their sexual psychology. So psychology didn't have it, so I started searching other places. And one of the places that I searched was the field of evolutionary biology. So I started reading about, well, how do they account for sexuality and mating strategies in other species? So I read about insect mating strategies, elephant seal mating strategies, and these are actually quite fascinating. So elephant seals... I highly recommend this if you go to the other coast, San Francisco, and drive about 50 miles south, you can see elephant seals mate, and they have a very unusual mating system also. They have a system known as harem polygyny. The males and the females are extremely sexually dimorphic. The males weigh on average 4,000 pounds, the females weigh on average 1,000 pounds, so it's like a four-to-one ratio there. It's, it's, It's... frightening. (laughs) Basically, what the males do, they have these enormous tusks, and they battle it out. And you can go on the coast of Northern California and watch these males battle it out, and they get gored, and it's an exhausting procedure. But the outcome is that there is one winner, and that winner gets access to the harem of females, which is typically about 20 females. Now, of course, the deposed males, the losers of these same-sex battles are not very happy about it, and so they do what I call mate poaching. Okay? They try to roam the perimeter, and you know, basically it's a sneaky fucker strategy in, in, in technical language. But the females don't like it, and so the female elephant seals will often bellow, alerting the alpha male who will come bounding over and fending off the mate poachers, but it's a very exhausting procedure. So if you're going to join another group, I would recommend the tiwi rather than the elephant seals. The alpha males are only able to maintain their alpha status for a season or two, and then you see them lying on the beach, basically you know, scarred and exhausted and barely breathing. So what this led me to was a theory that was used in evolutionary biology to explain some of the patterns of other animals, of other insects, and that's the theory of sexual selection. Now, most people, when they think about evolution, they think about natural selection. They think about nature, red and tooth and claw. They think about survival of the fittest, of individual organisms struggling for mere survival. And that, of course, is part of Darwin's theory of evolution. But there were things that Darwin noticed that could not be explained by this so-called survival selection. He noted, for example, uh, the brilliant plumage of peacocks, which is truly brilliant. And he wondered, how could this brilliant plumage possibly have have evolved? It seems counter to survival. It's like like a neon sign to uh, predators advertising fast food. How could this weird plumage evolve? He also noted things like sexual dimorphism, differences in the size, shape, morphology of males and females of the same species, which was very puzzling to him because both sexes face the same survival problems. Both sexes have to eat. Both sexes have to fend off predators, fend off parasites. Why would the sexes be different? 
And furthermore, why would in some species the sexual dimorphism be very small, such as gibbons, where it's virtually impossible for an, uh, an outside observer to distinguish a male and a female, to other species such as uh, homodryas baboons, where the males are about twice the size of females. Uh, our species, by the way, uh, males are about 10 to 12 percent larger and taller than females, although the magnitude of sexual dimorphism, of course, depends on what index you're using. So males differ in other aspects, such as uh, upper body strength and fat distribution and so forth. Uh, and then at the other extreme, of course, you have the, the elephant seals, a four to one ratio. So what causal process could explain why the sexes would differ and why different species would vary in the magnitude of their sexual dimorphism? Now, Darwin also hit a very good scientific habit, which I try to encourage in my graduate students and which I've noticed in myself, which is that people tend to forget facts that are inconsistent with their theories. Um, and so Darwin noted this in himself, and so he forced himself in a separate notebook to write down facts that were inconsistent with his theory. And these were the things he even wrote in one of his notebooks, the sight of a peacock gives me nightmares. And he was extremely troubled by this until he came up with what solved his nightmares, and that was the theory of sexual selection. Now, the theory of sexual selection deals not with the evolution of characteristics due to the survival advantage, but rather due to the mating advantage. It all boils down to mating success, and there are two uh, underlying causal processes by which sexual selection occurs. Okay, the first is the one that I just described with the elephant seals, intrasexual or same-sex competition where, you know, in the stereotypic case, males battle it out and the victor gains sexual access to the female. The loser ambles off if they're elk with a broken antler, uh, dejected, needing psychotherapy, <laughs> suffering from low self-esteem, perhaps needing Jamie Pennebaker's writing therapy to cure their problems. But the logic is very simple, but it's very powerful. Whatever qualities lead to success in these same-sex battles those qualities get passed on in greater numbers by virtue of the sexual access that the victors gain. Uh, qualities associated with loss basically bite the evolutionary dust. And so very powerful theory. Now, of course, when it's applied to humans, it's more general. I can guarantee you that in my psychology department, we, we males do not engage in physical contests, you know, the outcomes of which determine access to females. But the logic is of sexual selection, of intersexual competition is more general. So, for example, in our species, we compete for position in status hierarchies. Position in status hierarchies is linked to preferential mating success. And so males don't even necessarily have to meet in order to compete for this process to work. Okay, so that's, that's intrasexual competition. The second causal process is inter or between sex selection. Okay, and this is what Darwin called female choice. And the logic was also very simple but very powerful in implication. And that was this. If members of one sex had some consensus, some agreement about the qualities that they desired in members of the opposite sex, then those qualities, the men who possess those qualities would have a mating advantage, the males who possess those qualities. Those who lack the qualities would get shunned, would get banished, would get excluded from mating. And so, again, there would be an increase in frequency of the desired characteristics simply by virtue of this, in this case, female choice. So, for example, if it were the case that all women in the human species preferred to mate with males with red hair, then this room would be ablaze with redheads. 
and I look around, I see a few redheads, so it's clearly not, hasn't been a dominant preference. But you see what the, the, the point is, that all that it requires is a consensus, some heritability to, to the qualities that are desired, uh, and the process to be iterated uh, over time. Now, there was problems. So, so basically, the theory of sexual selection provides a very powerful skeleton or starting point for understanding human sexual psychology. Okay, but it's not enough. And Darwin was in error in something very fundamental, two aspects actually. Okay, one is that he called this process of uh, intersexual selection female choice. And he wasn't entirely off base because he observed that throughout the animal kingdom, females of most species seem to be more selective, uh, more discerning, more discriminating, more intelligent in their selection of partners than the males, who tended to be more indiscriminate and sometimes even mated with other species. Um, uh, The critical issue for understanding human sexuality, of course, is, well, okay, first of all, well, what are the things that women want? Okay, of course, and men have been posing this question, scientists going way back hundreds of years ago, what do women want? I teach a course called The Psychology of Human Mating, and uh, in one lecture, I start out, I have five blackboards, and I ask women in the class, well, just tell me, what, what do women want? And I start at one end, and I start writing, I say, well, I want a mate who's intelligent, who's interesting, who's kind, got a good sense of humor, healthy, attractive, got a good career trajectory, and they just go and I fill up five blackboards of <laughs> things that women want, and then I run out of space. And I do an analogous thing for men. It they st- goes up to about a blackboard and a half, and that's, <laughs> and that's almost uh, cheating because the men have an advantage of having the women having gone first, so they say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right, intelligence. I want that too. Um, so what was lacking was an understanding of what women wanted. And, and this, of course, is something that, that we're, we're still exploring. And the reason that this is... Uh, well, the second aspect, I should, you know, digressing a little bit here. The second thing is that although males tend to be less discriminating in their choice of sexual partners, it is, they, are, they don't lack choice. They are also... They express preferences. They, and I notice how, how many men in this room would mate with any woman... No matter what. Just raise your... Okay, just one, one guy. Um, um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, but but men, do, men do exert preferences at least some of the time, uh, even though they do lower their standard, standards to sometimes embarrassing levels. Um, because of this lack of uh, scientific understanding of, of what men and women wanted, this had to be the core of the thing. Darwin assumed that the qualities that women wanted were arbitrary. And this was an error. He he assumed that they could just be, okay, I like bright feathers, I like this. Uh, He assumed that they were arbitrary. And of course, female mate preferences are not arbitrary. And so I launched uh, what I called the International Mate Selection Project, where I wanted to understand what it is that men and women wanted in a long-term mate. And so I studied 37 different cultures with more than 10,000 individuals. And found some answers to that question, but those answers only led to further questions because then I uh, quickly realized, well, what they want in a long-term mate isn't necessarily what they want in a short-term sex partner. And it turns out that makes a great deal of difference. And so basically, 
the core of understanding human mating strategies, human sexual strategies, has to be understanding mate preferences as well as the strategies of intrasexual competition because the mate preferences of one sex drive the strategies of intrasexual competition in the other sex. So if it is the case, and I'm not saying that this is, that let's say randomly that women prefer men who are intelligent, respected by their peers, have some resources, uh, have a good career trajectory. If it is the case that women do prefer those things, then the logic of sexual selection dictates that men should be stumbling all over themselves to acquire the things and embody the qualities that women want. Uh, And so understanding competition requires understanding mate preferences. And so for, for the last X number of years, I've been exploring... Uh, different facets of these uh, mate preferences and patterns of intersexual competition. And it's led to uh, projects like studying mate poaching. Okay, so just like the elephant seals, those deposed males try to mate poach, uh, humans do mate poaching. Mate poaching turns out to be a surprisingly common mating strategy. And it it shouldn't surprise us, I guess, uh, because desirable individuals tend to get snapped up in the mating system fairly quickly, and also they're heavily guarded, okay, what I call mate-guarding strategies. And humans do it, insects do it as well. You read a book, there's a book called The Evolution uh, of Insect Mating Strategies. And you read what these insects do, and this actually led to my study of human mate-guarding. And insects do these things, the males uh, especially, what they'll do is they will build a fence around the female. They will grab the female, like let's say if they're love bugs, and remain locked in intercourse with them for three days. Uh, They will take the female and drag the female away from where the other males are. They will emit scents that conceal the attractant signals of the female. Uh, As I was reading it, I thought, boy, humans do all of those things. So guys, uh, husbands sometimes get upset if they're, a wife or if their partner is wearing something that's too sexually revealing, you know, and they want her to cover that up. They don't want other men. And, of course, there are individual differences. Uh, some men parade it, like Hugh Hefner. You know, he's not covering up his females. But humans engage in these uh, mate-guarding strategies. They engage in mate-poaching strategies. They engage in mate-expulsion strategies. What if you're stuck with the bad mate? You want to get rid of the mate, okay? You have to engage in tactics that can be well understood by understanding the mate preferences of each sex. So how do you get rid of a mate? You violate what that mate wants. And so people start getting mean, uh, they start getting cruel, they start inflicting costs on their partner that violate the initial mate preferences on which they were selected. They start withdrawing uh, resources, psychological, uh, financial, emotional resources from their partner. Sexual jealousy. I never forgot the, the Tiwis. Okay, those older guys were not happy about these younger guys having sex with their wives. Now, this is something that was a uh, a pattern that, well, in some groups and in some eras within the United States, particularly during the sexual revolution of the late 60s and early 70s, it was believed that sexual jealousy was an immature emotion, that only uptight, unliberated, low self-esteem, insecure people held. And me, at that time, I was well, in the 60s, but in the 70s, got caught up in this movement and 
publicly espoused the view that my girlfriend could have sex with whoever she wanted and that it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. The only problem was I didn't have a girlfriend. Um, <laughs> subsequently, a year later, when I did manage to acquire a girlfriend, I, just, I found my feelings about the issue suddenly changing. <laughs> no longer did I feel that it was acceptable for her to sleep with anyone else. This and some other considerations, namely some fundamental sex differences in our reproductive biology, led to a raft of studies on sexual jealousy. So, so uh, just to, to give a, one example, it's a fact of our reproductive biology that fertilization occurs internally within females, not within males. Now, this, is not, this is not a law of nature because in some species, fertilization occurs externally to both sexes. So fish species, some fish species, female lays the eggs, Male comes by, you know, coats it with sperm, and then they go off to the singles bar. Um, or, and if they're salmon, they just die. Uh, nothing left to do. Uh, in some species, very few, but in some, the female implants the egg within the male. But in our species, in all 4,000 species of, of mammals, of which we are one, of, in all 257 species of primates, of which we are one, fertilization happens to occur internally within the female, not within the male. Now, this raises an interesting adaptive problem for males known as the problem of paternity uncertainty. Men can never be sure. Some cultures use the phrase, mama's baby, papa's maybe, uh, to, to kind of capture this asymmetry. As far as I know, no woman has ever given birth, and as the child is emerging from her womb, wondered, gee, is this kid really my own? No, (laughs) women are always 100% sure. Even if you saw the movie Rosemary's Baby, the kid looked weird, but it's still her kid. Uh, And and in fact, we know based on uh, DNA fingerprinting studies that uh, rates of genetic cuckoldry are about 10 to 12% in human populations, varying a bit from culture to culture. So this is a problem that that men have faced that women have not. Now, what leads to this problem? Well, basically, from an evolutionary standpoint, those males that um, permitted other men to have sex with their partners left fewer descendants than those men who did something to prevent that from occurring. And uh, And so I argue that the emotion of sexual jealousy evolved in part in males to solve this paternity a certainty problem. Now, of course, males don't think that way. No male in any, you know, of the thousands of studies that I've, thousands of subjects that I've studied, no male has ever thought, let's see. Now, if this guy has sex with my partner, then that will jeopardize my paternity certainty, <laughs> impair my reproductive success, and jeopardizes the maximization of my gene replication. That makes me really mad. Uh, no. No, no men ever, it's just there's the cue. Cues to sexual infidelity are very prominent in the male mind, uh, and they trigger this emotion of sexual jealousy, and they act with tactics of mate guarding ranging from vigilance to violence. Women, of course, also have sexual jealousy, but it, it, in, in the same level of intensity, but it is diff- slightly differently configured. Uh, the weighting given to the cues that trigger sexual jealousy in women tend to be a bit more weighted toward cues to emotional infidelity. Of course, emotional infidelity is a sign of the long-term diversion of resources that are, are in fact, part of what women, what women want to start with. And we, I did studies, uh, I'll give you two quick examples. One, one where we give them what I call the Sophie's Choice of the Jealousy Domain. So what would upset, imagine your partner got interested in someone else. What would upset or distress you more 
imagining your partner having sexual intercourse with that other person or imagining your partner falling in love with that other person, becoming deeply emotionally involved. Give them both upset both sexes to a high degree. So if you give them scale, like a one to seven scale, both sexes max out on the sevens. But if you give them the Sophie's choice, there's a huge sex difference that emerges. Okay, male's more upset about the sexual, female's more upset about the emotional uh, cues. And we did it physiologically as well. And this is one of the uh, more fun studies that I did, is we brought people into the lab and hooked them up to physiological measuring instruments. We basically got heart rate. We, got, um, we placed an electrode on the brow region of the forehead, which basically measures corrugator contraction. So when you get upset, you frown, and we can measure the degree of corrugation. We got electrodermal activities, skin conduction. So when people get upset, they start to sweat. And so we got them into the lab, hooked them up, strapped them down, calm down because they think, are you going to shock me now? And I say, no, I know you've read that study. No, we're not going to shock you. Uh, we are recording, not delivering. And so, okay, now we give them scenes of running water, strolling across a college campus. Now that you're calm, we'd like you to imagine your partner trying out different sexual positions with someone else. Get the images in mind. Get the images in mind. And when you do, press a button. We record physiological reactions for 20 seconds. And we get them stopped, get them calmed down again, give them some more scenes of running water. Now imagine your partner becoming emotionally involved, falling in love with someone else. So we, and, and basically we found the same sex differences. Men, you know, I watched them through, some of the men, what we watched them through a one-way one mirror. And uh, some of the men, when, they, when you give them, imagine your partner trying out different sexual, some of the men start vibrating. You know, they're just, and, and some people say maybe they're aroused. No, they're not. They're very upset. These aren't, these aren't happy images for most men. Of course, there are always a few. Uh, so the sexual jealousy work then, of course, sexual jealousy is one of the leading causes. It, it actually is the leading cause of mate murder. 50 to 70% of all adult women who are murdered are murdered by their romantic partner or former romantic partner. Uh, and so... I thought, hmm, well, this is kind of interesting. I should start studying murder. And I thought, well, this might even help me to get away from mating. I've been studying mating for so long. You know, you know it's like uh, the cliche, you know, give someone a, a hammer and the world is full of nails that need to be pounded, you know. And so everywhere I look, I see mating. Sex mating, sex mating. It's everywhere. I can't walk down half a, a New York uh, uh, City block uh, without encountering at least a half a dozen mating-related uh, things. But I thought, surely most murders can't be related to mating. But it turns out they are. So that book that uh, Ellen kindly mentioned uh, earlier, The Murder Next Door, deals with the motives for murder, and most of them are boiled down to mating in one way or another, not necessarily killing mates, uh, but killing intrasexual competitors. It's one of the ways in which males compete. One good way to get rid of the competition is to kill the competition. And males are very fond of doing that. And that's a cross-cultural universal. Okay, that's not Every culture, 90% of the murderers uh, are, are men. And even the women who murder, uh, almost all of those tend to be uh, infants. Uh, and, and there are various reasons for that. So, so I couldn't get away from mating. Uh, so I got into sexual conflict, the ways in which men and women torture each other. And I thought... <laughs> You know, I've just observed this, and it seems like such an important phenomenon that men do things that upset, irritate, anger, and annoy women, and vice versa. Uh, and so I, my first study on that is I asked 
women. I said, tell me, just tell me everything that you've observed that men do that irritates, angers, upsets, or annoys you. And women were, were voluble on this topic. They were, uh, so I ended up with a, a list of 147 things you can do to upset, irritate, anger, annoy a member of the opposite sex and realized after that 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 list was too small. So I did a raft of studies on that of uh, what I call sexual deception. Okay, and I know this is not going to come as a surprise to you, but yes, men sometimes lie. And they lie, though, in very predictable ways. And so in our studies of sexual deception, we find that men do things like exaggerate the depths of their commitment, okay, exaggerate the, their love for the woman, okay, exaggerate their status at work. They basically exaggerate on all the qualities that women want in a mate in, in order to deceive them and then, uh, and then also experience what we've documented as well, uh, which I call an affective valence shift, which is and this only applies to men who are pursuing a short-term sexual strategy. Uh, and that is that post-orgasm, men who are pursuing a, sexu- a short-term sexual strategy experience a sudden plummet of how attracted they are to the woman. Okay. <laughs> And they're sometimes baffled by it. I said, just a minute ago, she looked gorgeous. And I, now I can't understand it. I think it's actually one of these kind of get out of dodge uh, motivational mechanisms that uh, motivates men to, well, you get the point. Women deceive men sexually too, though. Uh, and we found this in our studies as well. They sometimes, I don't know if this will surprise you, but sometimes they use sex as a method of luring the man into the relationship. Okay? In other words, they present themselves, in, in the way that I describe it more formally, is they present themselves as costless sexual opportunities, and then over time, they intercalate themselves into the male mind until one day the man wakes up and he realizes he cannot live without her. As far as we know, there are no known defenses against this strategy. <laughs> This led to uh, my most recent topic, which I explored with my colleague, Dr. Cindy Meston, who is an expert in the, uh, both the clinical and psychophysiological aspects of female sexuality. And we collaborated on a, a couple of research projects on why people have sex, and then recently wrote a book called Why Women Have Sex. And sometimes people ask, well, why did, why did you just write about women? Well, first of all, women are more complicated sexually than men. Given the time... Maybe I'll just say a, 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 few, a, few things, uh, a few things about that. Men's sexual attraction is heavily determined by visual cues. And this is something that is somewhat unique to our species because our, in our species we have an unusual uh, mating system. If you compare humans to our closest primate relative, the chimpanzee, in chimpanzee mating, female comes into estrus, bright red genital swellings, olfactory signals, you can basically, if you're a male chimp, you can see it and smell it a football field away. Males go into a sexual frenzy when the female is in estrus. Most of the mating happens during that time. There's a little bit on the fringes. Uh, And then basically the males ignore the females at all other times. With humans, we have what's called a concealed or cryptic ovulation. Males can't detect when females ovulate. And I had a graduate student who claimed that he could. He claimed that he... (laughs) He, he claimed that he could walk into this setting and say, okay, she's ovulating, she's not, she's ovulating, she's not. 
Uh, but as it turned out, that male graduate student exaggerated on a number of other tactics and got booted out. So um, now, as it turns out, in our species, recent research shows that it's not entirely cryptic. It's not entirely concealed, but it is still relatively concealed. Most men cannot just look around the room and know which women are ovulating. Uh, there are some subtle changes. So there are subtle changes in voice, subtle changes in, in scent, even subtle changes in appearance, but they're very, very subtle, nothing like the chimpanzee. But this poses a, a problem, an adaptive problem for males that no male chimpanzee has ever faced. And that is, from a, from a reproductive standpoint, how do you identify which women to mate with. Women have evolved this thing called concealed ovulation. And so men have had to rely on visual cues to fertility. Fertility is not something they can observe directly. All they can observe are the physical cues that are correlated statistically recurrently with this underlying quality called fertility. And so men tend to place a greater premium on these physical cues. And that's why you find, let's say, love at first sight much more common among men than among women. So men can walk into a gathering, see a woman from across the bar, say, I'm in love with that woman, I'm going to marry her. He hasn't even talked to her. Most women require more information. Uh, Women's sexual attraction is much more complexly determined. So even things in studies where you you say, take the, uh, the woman and you change aspects of her, put her in a different outfit, put her in a different setting, give her a different context, give her a higher status, lower status, it makes almost no difference. Men are just honing in on those physical cues. Women's sexual attraction, though, uh, is determined by a whole host of very subtle contextual cues. So, for example, sense of smell. Okay? If the guy doesn't smell right, that's a sexual kill switch to a woman. Guys are oblivious to that. Uh, And in fact, men don't have as acute sense of smell uh, as women to start with. But as it turns out, there's an underlying logic to these scents. And it turns out that, so they do the studies, my colleagues have, I haven't done these, but they they have men wear t-shirts for a couple of days, put the t-shirts in these large baggies and have women come into the lab and give give them a whiff and say, how repulsive or attractive is this scent? And then mark it down. And it turns out that women, when they, do, uh, when they genotype the women and genotype the men that they are smelling, women prefer the scents, the odors of men who have uh, complementary uh, MHC genes. Okay, MHC is the major histocompatibility complex, and it's basically the suite of genes that's involved in immune function. And it turns out there's an advantage to producing children who have a complementary suite of MHC genes as opposed to an identical or similar set of MHC genes. Women also prefer the sense of symmetry and the sight of symmetry. Symmetry can actually be smelled by women and can be observed physically. So think Lyle Lovett as like a very asymmetrical guy. The more asymmetrical, okay, women tend not to like it. Now, Julia Roberts did on that occasion, and, and he has other things going for him. He's a great musician and, and all that. But uh, as a general rule, okay, why is asymmetry not valued? Well, asymmetry is caused by two things. Okay, one, high mutation load. Okay, we all have mutations. The average human has something like 500 mutations, but there are individual differences. Some have more mutations than others. Males with a lot of mutations are more asymmetrical. Uh, women don't like that, and, and, they can, and they can smell that. The other, uh, of course, uh, quality is environmental insults during 
development which produce asymmetry. So you fall on your head enough times, bang into enough branches, get beaten up by enough other guys, that produces asymmetries in physical features. Masculinity uh, is another thing. But this is, interestingly, turns out to vary with where women are in their ovulation cycle if they are not taking oral contraceptives. Taking oral contraceptives basically flatlines the normal hormonal fluctuations like the LH surge, the testosterone surge, uh, the estrogen surge that occurs around ovulation. You take the pill, that flatlines that. Uh, But if you study women who are not taking the pill and that you show them photographs of males, male faces that are morphed to be either more masculine or more feminine, when women are seeking short-term mates and they're ovulating, they prefer the more masculine men. If they're going for long-term mates and they're not ovulating, they go for not necessarily the feminine men, but the, more, the less masculine-looking men. And this occurs for both face, body, so high shoulder to hip ratio, wide shoulders relative to hips, and also vocal features, uh, the masculine voice. Uh, so I think a um, uh, prototype would be James Earl Jones, for those of you who remember, uh, you know, he speak. He could even, you know, I, I can't do it because I'm not James Earl Jones, but he could speak the alphabet and sound sexy. You know, A, and B, and, you know, and women go, wow, that sounds really good. Um, why do women do this? Well, it turns out that testosterone, we know testosterone, about testosterone poisoning. Testosterone turns out to compromise the immune system. And so the higher, the more testosterone you have, the more your immune system is going to be compromised. But what happens is, so during adolescence, when the major uh, vocal, facial, and bodily features are being formed, the amount of testosterone a male is is secreting depends on how healthy he is. Those males who are not very healthy, to start with, basically suppress the production of testosterone and it results in less masculine features. Those males who are very healthy to start with can, quote, afford to crank out a lot of testosterone and develop those more masculine facial features. And so the theory behind this anyway, and it's just a theory, but there's some pretty good support for it, is that that it's a, a marker of genes for good health, that women are preferring this for short-term mates and when they're ovulating because that is the time when they basically can, can get pregnant and acquire good genes. And so women clearly don't have a single sexual strategy. They have multiple sexual strategies and sometimes you mix and match. So they sometimes get the commitment, resources, and love from one guy and get the genes from another guy. Uh, and, we know, and we know that this happens. Social status, of course, is something. doesn't affect how sexy men perceive women to be, but it definitely affects how sexy women perceive men to be. So someone like Mick Jagger, if you put him with a McDonald's cap and outfit on, um, no woman would find him attractive at all. Uh, uh, I mean, he's butt ugly. Uh, See, that's a derogation of competitors, I uh, think. Not that I'm in competition with Jagger. But, of course, you all know the, the famous Kissinger quote that, that power is an aphrodisiac, and, of course, he was right about that. Uh, his, his less famous quote, but I think equally apt, is he said, now when I bore people at parties, they think it's their fault. <clears throat> Sense of humor 
of course, is something that is very attractive to women. A guy with a good sense of humor. We found that in our studies of why women have sex. Some women just said, I wasn't attracted to him other ways, but I just had the greatest time with him. He made me laugh. Uh, I had the, you know, and it transferred into the sexual realm. Uh, so sense of humor is very important, although not every male is convinced of this. So the comedian, I'll read you one quote from the comedian Jimmy McFarlane. He said, one of the things that women claim is most important in a man is sense of humor. In all my years as a comedian, I've learned that they're usually referring to the, uh, the humor of guys like Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, <laughs> and, and Russell Crowe. Apparently, those guys are hilarious. <clears throat> <clears throat> Maybe the last thing I'll mention is one of the things that we have in our book, Why Women Have Sex, we have a bunch of chapters. So we have one on sexual attraction. We have one on sexual medicine. Uh, it turns out that orgasm, female sexual orgasm, cures headaches in a majority of women. And which is kind of interesting that sometimes, you know, the cliche is women sometimes say, well, not until I dare I have a headache. Now men can say, well, actually, there's good evidence that this will help with your <laughs> headache at this point. So there are actually a, a lot of medical benefits to sexuality, to, to having sex, uh, and especially to females for uh, having, having orgasm. Uh, although it's one of those things that female orgasm is, uh, is a fascinating and, myst- and mysterious topic in contrast to male orgasm, because male orgasm, it's, it's reliable, it's predictable. Uh, uh, there are entire books, 400-page books, that have been written on the female orgasm. And, and as far as I know, and I would know, uh, there's not so much as a pamphlet written on the male <laughs> orgasm. It's fascinating and complicated precisely because it's so variable. Okay, it's variable from woman to woman, it's variable from in the same woman from partner to partner, it's variable in the same woman with the same partner from moment to moment, day to day, mood to mood. Okay, so uh, we, in our studies where we got, we have more than a thousand women describing their actual sexual experiences for each of the 237 reasons that we discovered for why women have sex. And one woman said, uh, well, you know, when my husband gets a promotion at work, uh, it just, he just seems sexier that day, you know. And, uh, you know, and so the, these contextual factors influence women's sexual attraction, sexual arousal, and sexual orgasm uh, much more than males. Finally, women use sex, uh, and this is uh, uh, in one of the other chapters of the book, and, and this is something I find fascinating, as a mate-switching device. Humans are mate-switchers. Okay, now, perhaps not as much in our culture as some cultures. So you go to the Aceh of Paraguay, and among the Aceh, by the time a, a man or woman hits 40, they've been married and divorced on average 12 times. So they, there's a lot of mate switching going on among the Aceh. We don't do it quite as much, although we probably do it without just getting married. Um, so people get stuck with bad mates, face the adaptive problem of mate expulsion. And so female sexuality comes into play as a reason why women have sex in several interesting guises in this sense. Okay, one, mate insurance. In ancestral times, something could always go wrong. Your mate could die. Uh, your mate could get clubbed to death. Uh, your mate could get diseased. Your mate could dump you. Something could go wrong. Women who had mate insurance, a backup mate, okay, so one woman said, men are like soup. You always want to have one on the back burner. Um, <laughs> So uh, mate insurance, sometimes in relationships that start to fall apart, self-esteem suffers. And so women start to feel 
low about themselves, and that's a reflection also of self-perceived mate value. They think, well, I don't, no one else would want me. I'm miserable and undesirable. Well, having sex with someone else, having someone find them desirable, often gives them a boost of self-esteem, a boost of self-perceived mate value to propel them out of a bad relationship back out onto the mating market. Sometimes women have sex to trade up, okay? They discover someone who they are more in love with, more compatible with, uh, more desirable, and they use sex as a means to segue out of one relationship uh, into another. Uh, And then, of course, women also use sex sometimes to get over breakups. One woman in our study said, the best way to get over a man is to get under another one. (laughs) So in conclusion, I actually don't think I'm delusional in my view that mating is everywhere. I don't think it's absolutely everything, but I think it's something you can't pick a topic that's more important to human social interactions than mating. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in this week. Science and the City is a non-profit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.